Welcome to the Magical History Tour Podcast. I'm Hollis Node, your tour guide, and in this episode, we're going to check out what's happening in the Americas and in Western Europe prior to Columbus. We're going to take a brief look at the Maya, the Aztec, some feudalism in Western Europe, and a little glimpse of the Renaissance. Also, a little country called Portugal is going to become one of the big four Renaissance kingdoms. So let's get started on our tour. Now, the first thing we're going to kind of talk about is something that doesn't sound all that exciting, and that's farming. (laughs) But it is kind of interesting because at the end of the Stone Age, people in four different parts of the world all develop farming systems unbeknownst to each other, and they're each based on a different crop. Now, Southeast Asia farmed rice, wheat was farmed in West Asia, corn or maize in Mexico, and potatoes in the Andean highlands of South America. Now, today, corn and potatoes, the two American crops, contribute more to the world's food supply than wheat or rice. Corn and potatoes were called the miracle crops, and we'll talk about them a little bit more as we go through, but they fuel the expansion of European humans and the livestock populations in the three centuries after 1650. Now, as farming grows more important, it's going to radically change social life. You don't really think of it, but if you're going to be a farmer, what do you need to have? And where do you need to live? Well, you need to have water and you need to live near your crops. You can't just plant something and go wander off and come back later and hope it's there. At the time, people were primarily hunters and gatherers. They were nomadic. They moved around a lot. But as we start farming, you're going to see that you're going to get a population growth. You're going to see that they need to live near their fields. And that's going to lead to the appearance of villages and permanent architecture. The eventual emergence of large, densely settled communities. You also have to deal with your harvests. Harvests have to be stored and distributed. You get a division of labor because you're going to have the appearance of specialists, like people who make the tools that you farm with, uh, craft workers, farmers, of course, administrators of the food and food processors and priests and all kinds of things like that. Now, historians today consider a civilization. If you're, if you're going to look at a group of people and say, are they a civilization? They have to have four components. The first one is an urban life. You're going to also need a division of labor. You're going to see a hierarchical social system, which means that they're going to start valuing some jobs, things like that, more than others. And then you're going to need a system of writing. Now, several of the societies that, are, that develop in what are, what's going to become the United States met all of those requirements except for one thing. They didn't have a system of writing developed. So the ones that we're going to focus on are actually in Mesoamerica. And the first one is, of course, the Mayan civilization. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the Mayans, but they were a really fascinating culture. And they were mathematicians. They were astronomers. They knew the use of a zero, which is something that only India had come up with at that point. They had a fairly accurate calendar. Now, we'll say that they got their original calendar from a group called the Olmec, but they improved upon it, and so they kind of get credit for an accurate calendar. They were made up of city-states, and they were each separate and they fought a lot amongst each other. They, they engaged in a lot of ritual sacrifice. And eventually, while they were very impressive for quite some time, they ended up beginning to disintegrate uh, due to things like deforestation, drought, hunger, and war. 
The Maya are considered a civilization because of all of the things we just mentioned, but also because they did have a system of writing. Unfortunately for us, after about 1500, a Spanish bishop by the name of Diego de Landa condemned the books that the Mayans had written as superstition and lies of the devil. He had almost all of them destroyed, so there's very little evidence. In fact, only four literary works of the Maya survived. Now, we do have hieroglyphs that were carved into rock. That's a little harder to get rid of, but we don't have much left. Now, they did begin to disintegrate, and by the late 13th century, the center of civilization in Mesoamerica had moved to the Valley of Mexico with the Mexica or Aztec people. They founded their capital city on Lake Texcoco around 1325, and they eventually defeated all of their neighbors. Their capital was called Tenochtitlan. It was impregnable. It could be entered only on a few narrow causeways. It was surrounded by water. They were kind of, uh, Tenochtitlan was kind of on an island in the middle of Lake Texcoco, and they had drawbridges and things like that to raise and lower so that no one could get in without them knowing. So the Aztec were like really hard to sneak up on. When the Aztec conquered a group of people, they wanted submission and tribute. And the conquered tribes were required to bring specific amounts of bulk goods and people for sacrifice and things like that to the capital every year. And if they were late, the Aztec would immediately attack. So the people around the Aztec whom they conquered, which was pretty much everybody, uh, didn't really care for them that much. Now, the capital itself was amazing. The streets were swept clean daily. The homes of the poor were much nicer than the homes of the lower classes in Spain during this time. It's going to become the largest city in the Western Hemisphere by the end of the 15th century. By the time the Spanish arrived, they found a sprawling Aztec empire that was connected by a network of roads that will connect 371 city-states organized into 38 different provinces. Now, the Aztec not only sacrificed victims, they also occasionally practiced ritual cannibalism, which basically meant that if they, for example, captured a great warrior from another tribe, they might eat his heart to kind of gain some of those attributes that they felt that he had. They did occasionally practice ritual cannibalism. But they did a lot of sacrificing in general. The Aztec demand for human sacrifice was really greater than any of the other civilizations before them. One of the gods to whom they sacrificed, and they sacrificed to quite a number of them. This one god required, they said, 10,000 hearts in an ordinary year. In 1487, that god was said to be agitated, and the priests will send 20,000 volunteers and captives to their doom in a four-day period. One emperor was said to have slaughtered 80,000 people to dedicate a new temple. Now, these numbers are kind of sketchy. They're not facts. Most of the Aztec chroniclers, as well as pretty much most uh, ancient civilization historians, typically exaggerated quite a bit. It's like if you went to a concert and you saw that there were a large number of people there and you texted your friend and said, oh my gosh, there are a million people here. Yeah, we know there are not a million people there. So we know that it wasn't quite as many as they probably said. However, there's no denying that many people were ritually sacrificed. And the late 1400s and early 1500s were especially difficult for the Aztec people. 
You have comets appearing in 1489 and 1506, which scared people. They didn't know what that was. You had a total eclipse of the sun in 1496. You had severe droughts. And then after some severe droughts, you had a major flood in 1499. Then in 1514, a neighboring king died. And it was said that his last words were ominously (laughs) that Mexico would soon be ruled by strangers. So if you were living in this era and all of these things were happening around you, what would you think? How would you react or respond? Well, these things worried people significantly and it led to their attempts to stay on the right side of the gods. So that meant a lot more sacrificing. Now in 1502, Emperor Montezuma II took over and it's during his reign that the Aztec will first run into Europeans. Now, speaking of which, just for your information, the Europeans were no angels. They conducted very gruesome public tortures and executions, and between 1530 and 1630, England alone executed like 75,000 people. So it wasn't just the Aztec and the Maya and these native groups that were sacrificing and killing people. It was going on kind of all around the world. And now we're going to kind of take a look at Western Europe. What's going on while all this is happening in the Americas? Now, of course, we know that there was contact between the people of the old and new worlds prior to Columbus. But the contact with the Americas that was established by Columbus has extreme consequences. Within one generation of Columbus's voyage, you have continental exchanges of people, crops, animals, and germs, and all kinds of things that will reshape the Atlantic world. So to understand what happened and why it happened, we need to look back at the transformation that's going on in Europe during the several centuries prior to Columbus. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just to kind of give you an idea. Western Europe at that time was an agricultural society, mostly made up of peasant farmers. Now, farming had been around in Europe for thousands of years, but a lot of major advances in farming techniques and technology will take place in the late Middle Ages. So you have things like water mills being invented, iron plows, um, improved devices for harnessing oxen and horsepower, systems of crop rotation will come into being. All of those things are going to increase the population and increase production, and it's going to more than double the amount of European land that's in cultivation. Looking at Western Europe during this time, the social system in Western Europe is called feudalism. And feudalism is where you have land divided into small territories that are ruled by a family of lords who were very wealthy and powerful. Uh, They commanded labor, service, and tribute from peasants who worked the land for them. So feudalism is a socioeconomic system, and it's based on the ownership of land. In feudalism, you really have no social mobility. You have the upper class, you have the lower class, and you have the clergy or the church. There wasn't really a way to move up the ranks and become a lord or something like that. It was not something that happened. You just were what you were. So most Europeans at this time are Christians. They're under Roman Catholicism. And while people might say, ooh, I want to live in the time of lords and ladies and knights and things like that, it really wasn't so spectacular. I'll just say, because living conditions, not so great. About a third of all children died before they reached the age of five. Only half of the population 
ever reached adulthood. People died really young. You had occasional widespread famine, which caused a lot of the death. You also had things like the bubonic plague, or the Black Death, as they called it. That, that epidemic will wipe out a third of the European population between 1347 and 1353, a six-year period. A third of them are wiped out. You would have it go in cycles. So you would have a famine, and you would have a plague, and then we'd come back to a famine. It would just be cyclical, and people would just continually die. So despite all of those bad things, because of the technological breakthroughs in farming that we talked about before, the European economy is gradually able to recover. You'll see feudalism beginning to die out and a middle class will begin to arise. You'll see also an expansion of commerce and trade, and that's going to stimulate the growth of markets and towns. So famine and disease are still going to be there, but they're not reappearing in the same disastrous pattern as before. And we'll see the beginning of what we call the Renaissance. Now, Italian merchants become the principal suppliers of the Crusades. Uh, the Crusades are a series of military expeditions that are promoted by the Catholic Church in order to recover the Holy Land from the Muslim people. And we're not going to really discuss the Crusades much at all because we're trying to get to the American part of American history. <laughs> but these conquests of the Holy Land in the 11th century are going to deliver the silk and spice trades of Asia into the hands of Italian merchants. Europeans will also benefit economically from Asian technologies like the compass and gunpowder and, of course, the printing press. Contact with Muslim civilization gave Western scholars access to important ancient Greek and Roman texts, which had been lost to them during the Middle Ages, but they were preserved in Muslim libraries. So this ability to have access to these writings will lead to a period of artistic and intellectual flowering in Europe between the 14th and 16th centuries. And that's due to this revival of interest in classical antiquity, classical antiquity being Greek and Roman writings and Greek and Roman uh, architecture and things like that. It's known as the Renaissance, and it's a period of rediscovery of these ancient texts. It's the rebirth of secular learning, and it comes with it a spirit of inquiry. And that spirit of inquiry will spread throughout the elite circles of Europe with the help of the revolution in, of publishing, the printing press, the beginning of regular postal service, and the growth of universities. So the Renaissance really celebrates human possibility. And the Renaissance outlook, that spirit of inquiry, is going to be a really critical component of the spirit that motivates the exploration of the Americas. Now, because of the contact with Muslims through the Crusades and because of several adventurers like Marco Polo, he's not just a fun pool game, um, Marco Polo traveled to East Asia and when he came back, he let people know that the silks and the spices that they had come to enjoy were dirt cheap in the Orient, as they called it. It was less expensive. Uh, you would have uh, Middle Eastern middlemen would bring them to the Italians. The Italians would take them to Western Europe, each time marking them up significantly. 
And then when the retailers got them, they would mark them up even more. And this is going to be the big reason for all of this exploration during this time, because it was so much money that you were spending to have these goods brought over land or over sea, because it was very dangerous to do either one of those things in very long trips. So of course, they're going to mark it up and get a good profit. But the sailor who could find a direct route to the Indies could keep all of that extra wealth from trickling out of his country and into Italy. And the country might even be able to displace the Italians as wholesalers of Asian products. This is really going to to spur a lot of explorations. Now, by the end of the 15th century, four powerful nations have emerged. England, France, Spain, and Portugal. And if you're wondering, what? Portugal? (laughs) Um... It's a good question, but Portugal is the first of the new Renaissance kingdoms to explore distant lands. There were a lot of Italian merchants in Portugal, and by 1385, John I of Portugal will come to the throne as a new king, and he wanted to establish a Portuguese trading empire. Now, his son, whose name was Prince Henry, who will be called later Prince Henry the Navigator, was really interested in the sea and in explorations. And he's kind of, you know, he does a few little explorations of his own, but they're nothing major. Uh, But he's really important because he will establish an institute in Portugal, an academy of eminent geographers, instrument makers, shipbuilders, and sailors. And they all got together and worked on explorations. And because of them, by the mid-15th century, any educated European knew that the world was not flat, but a spherical globe. It's one of the myths that they thought it was flat. They also design a new ship. It's called the Caravelle. And it was a faster and better handling ship than any previously known to Europe. So using these Caravelles, The Portuguese will explore the Atlantic coast of northwestern Africa. By 1460, they had colonized the Atlantic islands of the Azores and the Madeiras and had founded bases along Africa's Gold Coast. The Portuguese eventually erect strategic trading forts along the coast of Africa, India, and China, and they're going to gain control of much of the Asian spice trade. They are also the ones who established the Atlantic slave trade, which we'll discuss later as the podcast progresses. So I've set the stage for Columbus, and in the next episode, we're going to talk about Columbus who sails the ocean blue, Cortez who attacks the Aztec, you've got the Colombian Exchange, and the Spanish in the Americas, a couple of references to some Simpsons episodes, and a whole lot of epidemic disease, and not all in the Americas. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like it, recommend it to a friend. See you next week.